This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. It has been a very hectic last couple of weeks with news surrounding the Supreme Court. The recent news this past week was decisions regarding the overturning of the corruption charges against former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, as well as the decision on abortion access law in the state of Texas, amongst many other rulings. Yet all of this occurred while the highest court was short one justice. It was expected that the eight-person Supreme Court might end many decisions in 4-4 deadlocks, at least until a new justice was appointed, but that wasn't necessarily the case. Still, the death of Antonin Scalia leaves the court with a big hole to fill and one that won't be filled until after the presidential election. To take a look at the latest from the Supreme Court, we're joined by Ted Ruger, who's the dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and also joining us, Nan Hunter, who's a professor of law at Georgetown University, and she's associate dean for graduate programs. Ted, great to have you back on the show. Nan, welcome for the first time. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Good to be here. Thank you. Ted, I'll start with you. Uh, the, the, in the last month or so, I mean, there have been so many rulings that have been have been uh, have come down from the court. Uh, what were the ones that really caught your attention the most? Well, I think like everyone uh, watching the court, uh, it was yesterday's momentous uh, abortion rights ruling that perhaps has uh, the biggest uh, impact in the country. Uh, and then the other one, which all of us in higher education were watching quite closely uh, where it was the Fisher versus Texas um, case involving uh, the ability of educational institutions like Penn to consider a candidate's entire background in the admissions process. And, uh, you know, we're pleased that the court in that case uh, uh, kept the law in place and, and allowed uh, universities to have discretion to consider candidates' um, full contextual background. Nan, how about you? I would add to those two uh, the non-decision uh, in the immigration case, uh, which left in place an injunction against the president's attempts to uh, uh, allow uh, certain paths forward for uh, persons living here, undocumented persons living here. And there's no decision there, so there's no law being made. It's simply the rules of the court are that when there is a 4-4 tie, the um, lower court's decision is affirmed by a tie vote and without setting any precedent. And in this case, the lower court, the Court of Appeals, um, had uh, issued an injunction against the president's executive order. But in terms of impact on uh, large numbers of people, I agree with Ted that it was the abortion case, um, the affirmative action case, and I would add the immigration case. We're talking with uh, Ted Ruger, uh, the dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, also Nan Hunter of Georgetown University. We're talking about the Supreme Court. 844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to jump in with a comment. 844-942-7866. I guess, uh, Nan, when when Justice Scalia passed, uh, as I said at the top, there was, I guess, a belief by by some people that many of the decisions were going to end up in 4-4 deadlocks. There were some uh, were there as many as you expected? There were not as many as I expected. Um, the uh, immigration case uh, was one, of course, and there was also one uh, concerning public sector unions. Yep. Um, the uh, the I also had had expected 
uh, a four-four tie in uh, the contraceptive um, access case under uh, contraceptive uh, requirement of covering um, contraception uh, under the Affordable Care Act. And instead, the court engaged in a pretty remarkable move, actually. They basically are attempting uh, or have attempted to settle the case. Uh, my hunch is they did reach a 4-4 tie, but um, they sought additional briefing from the parties and perceived in those uh, briefs that were submitted after oral argument that there was a possibility of a compromise, that the case could be settled, basically, that the two sides could find a resolution that they had not been able to find before. Um, and so the court remanded it to uh, courts of appeal to to consider that possible resolution. So that case is going to, to keep going. It's possible that it won't settle and that it will come back to the Supreme Court. Uh, but I think that's the 4-4 the four, four tie that, that didn't happen. Um, or that did happen, but uh, it didn't end up that way. But I also thought there was a, a pretty good chance of a 4-4 tie in the abortion decision as well. Right. And I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that it came out the way it did. Ted, how about you? Were there, were there as many or, or fewer 4-4s than you expected? Uh, I, I want to just amplify and agree with something that Nan said about the, con- the, the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate case. I think I would have predicted a 4-4 tie, you know, kind of on the record uh, there. It, it is extraordinary. The, the Supreme Court uh, is doing something that we more typically see with federal district judges, where they'll kind of uh, uh, kind of have, with the decision looming over both sides, they'll kind of force them into settlement. And so it is, a, it's quite unusual and interesting what the Supreme Court did there. But uh, I think uh, I would have, I would have thought, had they ruled on, on the merits, uh, we would have had this uh, terse four to four opinion. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number. Give us a call right now. We're talking about the Supreme Court and some of the rulings that uh, it has made over the last couple of weeks. Ted Ruger, dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Nan Hunter from Georgetown uh, University. Uh, the the ruling Nan in the abortion access law case. Uh, some of it is obviously being looked at in terms of Justice Kennedy. Uh, and his kind of importance in this ruling and how it it swung to the 5-3 verdict. Delve into a little bit just into that about Justice Kennedy and his move uh, in that case. Well, Justice Kennedy has a a mixed record if you just look at his rulings in reproductive rights cases. Uh, It's generally on the conservative side. Um, The big exception to that was in 1992 in the Casey decision where um, uh, the, essentially the center of the court coalesced, uh, which at that time uh, consisted of Justices Kennedy, um, O'Connor, and Souter, and they formed um, uh, a joint opinion, which is a little bit unusual, uh, as the opinion of the court, rather than have just one justice write the opinion of the court. But the, the effect of that was... Um, to sustain Roe versus Wade, because at that point in time, the question was, should Roe versus Wade be overruled? So Justice Kennedy um, uh, joined in that joint opinion and said, you know, people rely on Roe versus Wade. Uh, it's an important decision. We're not going to overrule it. Um, and yet he has participated in a number of decisions that have, have sort of eaten into 
um, the right of women to choose, including Casey itself, which set up a standard of allowing the, the states to restrict or regulate abortion in what, or regulating ways that restrict access to abortion, even in the first trimester, um, so long as those restrictions don't constitute an undue burden. And for the last several decades now, courts have, you know, people have been litigating, the courts have been arguing about what is an undue burden? Well, you know, how, how heavy does the restriction have to be? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, what the court did yesterday with Justice Kennedy joining in the opinion, um, saying that um, it, uh, these restrictions are pretext. They don't uh, advance the health of women. They do nothing really except um, make abortion more and more difficult as a practical matter uh, for women to to be able to choose, and so that was a that was a huge step. So I mean, because Justice Kennedy has sort of um, you know been on both sides. I mean, I I you know I'm guessing that he personally is troubled by abortion, but believes what he said in Casey and what he has said in some of the gay rights cases also, which is that you know it's not up to the court to adopt one. Um, definition of morality, um, and so the the government, the state, has to remain neutral, no matter what I, Anthony Kennedy, might feel uh, with regard to abortion. So I think he really um, he demonstrated the the um, you know his integrity in a sense by joining Justice Breyer's opinion. I mean, Justice Kennedy did not write separately, but he was clearly the decisive vote in the sense that. If he had not joined the majority, it would have been a 4-4 tie. Ted? And just to pick up on that, that on the import of Justice Kennedy's uh, vote in this case, had it been a 4-4 tie, uh, the, the, the decision, the, um, the lower court opinion, which enjoined in, these in Texas, would have stood. Uh, but the, what's so important about the Supreme Court's ruling is that it impacts more than 20 other states around the country now that have doesn't automatically invalidate uh, right. because these are slightly different statutes. But what it will do is produce follow-on litigation and a, and a real precedent um, for abortion rights advocates for challenging uh, both the admitting privileges uh, component, which is prevalent in many other states, and the um, kind of surgical care center uh, component of the Texas law and. Uh, so that that's why it, it really does matter that it was a five to three as opposed to a four to four decision. I wanted to also get your opinion on uh, the case against former Virginia Governor Bob McDonald, because, you know, even though it doesn't have the importance to the United States as a whole, uh, as the, the, the case in Texas with the abortion access law, it, it probably does draw a lot of attention because I, I think so many Americans get frustrated with what happens to politicians when there's corruption and, and when they are convicted? Uh, there is, you know, the case here in 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 Pennsylvania of uh, U.S. Representative Chaka Fatah, who was, you know, convicted of corruption, and he basically came out and say said that, okay, well, I'm going to resign my post, but I'm going to do it in three months, you know, and basically stay on the on the on the company dime for that while. The case against Bob McDonald and and, and the overturn on that. Where where did you stand on that, Ted? Well, that's a fascinating case in the sense, first of all, it's unanimous, and it's uh, 
quite well written by Chief Justice Roberts, but it's going to be, as you say, a provocative case and a provocative case to teach for any of us who teach in law schools, because, you know, essentially the bribery statute under which uh, Governor McConnell was convicted said you can't take a gift in in return for, quote, an official act. And what McDonald did was set up uh, meetings with key state officials, um, set up uh, maybe even a research program at at some Virginia State universities on behalf of major companies who would benefit from this. And I think all of us, as a matter of common sense, would agree that if a governor or other top official gives a a big company or a big donor access to the key decision maker, say the head of the FDA for a drug company, with a private meeting, um, we'd all agree that that is giving them something of value in return for that uh, that gift. So it cer- certainly feels like a quid pro quo. The court was very literal and very narrow in its reading of official act, and basically said the only things you know that what what official act means is a decision by the governor yeah. that in in itself within its own four corners was a legal ruling, a regulation, a decision, an approval, a disapproval. Um, so, therefore, all that the governor did to set up these behind-the-scenes meetings were not official acts. Now, that's going to be controversial, and it's going to give many Americans the fear that uh, that people of means and corporations can have these kind of uh, unequal access. I will say, before, uh, before I, I close, it, under federal law, federal law doesn't require quid pro quo. Federal law makes it illegal to accept yep. any gifts um, of above a very low amount. $25 or 50 in aggregate, meaning that this wouldn't happen. We don't need to worry about federal executive branch officials or members of Congress vis-a-vis this ruling, because they will have broken the law the minute they accept the gift, even before they set up the meeting. Nan, I j- just get your opinion on that as well, because as kind of Ted alluded to, I think there are a, a lot of Americans that uh, that probably feel that you know, if this has basically been cleared and, you know, by the letter of the law, according to the Supreme Court, it, it wasn't uh, any kind of violation, uh, most Americans would still think that it is a violation. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it really touches a nerve uh, in terms of people being angry, as they should be, I think, uh, about the outsized access that, that big donors have. Um, the, there are a couple of uh, you know possibilities open. Um, one is that the law, this particular law, could be rewritten by Congress. This was a an, an opinion that um, uh, was an example of statutory interpretation. So, in other words, the court was saying, "Look, the statute is so broad that it doesn't give people fair notice when they cross the line into committing illegal acts. It's unconstitutionally vague." And, of course, Congress could then rewrite the law and um, define uh, certain terms in certain ways, and then it would not be unconstitutionally vague. I mean, to use the example that Ted just gave of um, the law that applies to uh, many federal uh, employees, uh, if you accept anything um, over a, a low amount of value, then, you know, then you've uh, violated the law. And so, mm-hmm. you know, people... You know, people know where the line is drawn, and they don't cross the line. I think on the federal side, the the uh, issue is um, that uh, not so much the acceptance of personal uh, gifts. I mean, he, here you had the governor and his wife. They got, you know, I mean, it, it's just 
tacky. I mean, you're talking <laughs> about Rolex watches and vacationing. I mean, you know, cars. They're very, they're very personal things. One can make the argument as a normative matter that, um, you know, for example, on the federal side, um, you know, donations are, you know, we don't normally think that members of Congress, and I, don't, I, I think they do generally obey the law. I don't think they get Rolex watches or whatever, but they get enormous campaign contributions yep. worth, you know, much more than what was at stake uh, in this case, and those are lawful. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, a, it's really a, a, a policy question, I think, of where, you know, where we believe Congress should draw the line in terms of campaign contributions. We're joined by Ted Ruger, uh, Dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Nan Hunter, Professor of Law at Georgetown University, also Associate Dean of Graduate Programs there. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. There were a couple of interesting cases that were brought up uh, that I wanted to bring up, and they're linked in one particular way. First off, the case uh, that I believe it was a 6-2 to two decision by the court, and, and it was, from what I read, the first time that Justice Thomas had really questioned in a decade was the one involving domestic abuse, people convicted of domestic abuse being able to get a handgun, and that is, has basically been, been taken off the books. Uh, just the reaction, Ted, on that one, because they also decided not to take up anything involving the uh, the semi-automatic gun law uh, up in Connecticut. Right. Well, I think you know those those two the the decision on the merits and then the decision not to take the semi-automatic law, you know, reflects something that has been a long-standing proposition, even articulated by the late Justice Scalia in the Heller decision, which upheld a, uh, an individual right to, to carry a, a handgun in D.C. Um, there's n- never been a majority of the court that has said that the Second Amendment precludes reasonable gun regulation. Right. And that could be gun regulation of individuals who have a domestic violence conviction. It could be regulation of certain types of firearms, like semi-automatic. So to the extent we hear in our political rhetoric the notion of an absolutely unfettered Second Amendment, that's coming from the political branches, from a few members of Congress, from the NRA. There's been no justice, right or left, who's ever said that the Second Amendment is free from reasonable limits, just like many other constitutional rights. And these cases underscore that. Nan? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the, there's, a, there's a, a kind of factual overlay there. Case A involved guns, case B involved guns. Yeah. But in terms of the legal principle being established, the domestic violence case uh, really, uh, although Justice Thomas uh, sort of took it in that direction in, in part of his dissent, um, it, it's really not a gun rights case. It is interesting, though, that with, with that decision, though, Nan, could that potentially open the door down the road for other types of convicted individuals to be brought into that kind of a realm where they don't have access to guns. And I'm sure that's something that, if it kind of played out down the road, that an organization like the NRA would, would get very much involved with. Well, I think that's right. I mean, it does certainly indicate that, um, I mean, the, the constitutionality of, of any uh, regulation, as, as Ted just said, is, I mean, is, um, you know, it is certainly not a, qu- a closed question. 
um, to um, in quite in fact quite the opposite. It has always been the case that uh, states have the right to enact certain kinds of regulations, and the, that was also exemplified in the courts. I think declining to to take the um, the other case. I, I think from Connecticut. I'm not sure, um, but the. I think you're going to see um, a a renewed effort to draw new lines. My understanding is there's been some effort uh, in the wake of the Orlando killings um, to um, propose compromise uh, legislation that would at least do something uh, with regard to gun control. Um, You know, an effort by, I believe, Senator Collins from Maine. So I think that I think that sort of thing is going to continue, and I think it's probably going to be a pretty big issue in in the elections. Ted, obviously, as we uh, as we go towards the the presidential election, we're not going to know what's going to happen with the Supreme Court until after the decision on on who is president of the United States. Uh, that being said, though, what, what you've seen from the court over the over the last few months, it just where's your sense of? of where these eight justices are are kind of headed right now? Have you seen any kind of sea change, and and maybe even a little bit because uh, of of some of the leanings of Justice Kennedy? At, you know, in part because of the the Texas case. I think what this underscores is how important the next choice of justice is, and thus the importance of the presidential election, since we know that the the next president will have at least one more more likely more than one uh, supreme court appointment these are very closely divided cases even with some of the decisions that justice kennedy made and i would emphasize that you know the court is a complex unit and justice even some of justice kennedy's votes where he provided the swing vote in some of these close cases um, may have been driven by the fact that it was an eight justice court so that for instance had there been another conservative justice on the court I don't think we can assume that Justice Kennedy would have necessarily voted the same way in the affirmative action case or in the abortion rights case, um, which is to say that particularly for the median vote on the court, which Justice Kennedy is, the vote is a function of where he sees the law, but also where he sees the kind of composition of the court, and uh, all of which says the the identity and, and uh, judicial philosophy of the next justice is is critically important. Nan, how about you? I agree with that. I mean, I think Justice Kennedy is, uh, has shown in any number of decisions that uh, he can function as, as the statesman uh, of the court uh, because he is uh, the swing vote. I mean, if you take the Fisher case, uh, for example, the, um, uh, you know, that, that's a seven-person court because Justice Kagan recused herself right. having been part of the, the early, um, you know, uh, uh, views of the the United States when she was when she was still in the federal government, um, it's still Solicitor General. So uh, you know, I think the I think Kennedy is aware of that. I think the um, the uh, abortion case, uh, and, you know, was an example of of you know him not wanting to. I, I'm guessing in part him not wanting to to leave um, in place. Um, this, you know, really um, deeply burdensome uh, law in Texas, and uh, I'm I'm also guessing that um, the the very careful uh, invocation of the evidence and the very sort of step by step way that Justice Breyer wrote the opinion of the majority 
may have been uh, influenced to some extent um, by Kennedy's, you know, not not wanting to go any any farther um, uh, than was necessary. So I think the, I mean, it, it is going to be enormously important, um, you know, who the next justice is. I mean, we we do have these four four votes in some important yep. cases. We have one, you know, um, person margins and others, uh, and clearly the court is at a as a, at a turning point, and you know, it's not just the the death of Justice Scalia, but as we know, there there's some other you know older folks, sure. uh, both sides, if you will, on the court, and so it's 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 going to be reconstituted uh, over the next uh, five to ten years. Nan, thank you very much for joining us, Ted. Always uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you both. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.